Hello, and thanks for listening to uh, this episode of the Mount Sinai Health Partners podcast. I'm Rob Fields, uh, Senior Vice President, Chief Medical Officer for Population Health at Mount Sinai. And I'm really excited uh, to talk to Dr. Julie Nissen today. Um, we actually just met formally for the first time today, um, but we were chatting before we got started and, that, and just really excited about the conversation today. So thanks for joining us, Julie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Tell me uh, a little bit, if you don't mind, we'd, we'd like to orient everybody to who we're talking to and so they, they can read a little bit. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I am 14 years out of medical school, almost 15. Um, correction. I'm 14 years out of medical residency, almost 15, yeah. and trained formerly in at Boston, at Boston University, where I worked with a lot of the indigent population, um, veterans, a lot of community health. Then from there, came back to New York to do a fellowship in primary care where I got my master's of public health and did a lot of academic medicine with medical students, medical residents, and a little bit of quality um, in-house through the hospitalist mm-hmm. um, network. Yeah. And um, you're an internist. I'm an and, internist. Um, for those, we, sometimes we get a lot of non-physicians that listen to that may not understand, gosh, you did an internal medicine residency and then you did a primary care fellowship. Can you talk a little bit about that as an internist, why that would be a thing? Sure. So out of residency, sometimes you need a little extra boost in what what you don't get a chance to see when you're a resident. And mm-hmm. although I was lucky enough to, to do so much community health Um, The primary care fellowships are really uh, geared towards spending a lot of time with outpatient, ambulatory, healthy folks, sometimes minorities, sometimes underprivileged Mm -hmm. or low access, um, and getting getting better care to them. And so that's how those fellowships are are geared and there's a component of teaching and and learning even i took right. we did a bunch of classes through the medical school oh, cool. for learning how to educate literacy right. classes health literacy classes right. um learning how to write objectives right learning how to write and teach a lecture yeah cool um tell me about your interest in public health so what drove that so when i when i was in medical school and i started working I went to medical school in Long Island, uh, far out in Nassau County, mixed population of folks. It was the first time that I sort of was aware of how even New York, as diverse as it is, and we have such great access to care, we have so much medicine in New York, mm-hmm. there's several people who still can't get there. Yeah. So there was a part of me that was like, when I decide I want to retire, or when I burn out, <laughs> or when I get really fatigued of doing this... I'm going to take this really long sabbatical and I'm going to go into these underserved communities in New York and I am going to deliver really good health care. Yeah. And I believe that what I was missing out of residency was how to how to deal with population health, epidemiology, health literacy became like the love of my life when mm-hmm. I was doing my, ma- my master's of public health because you don't realize how many times you say a sentence to a patient that you think is so simple and they right. have no and idea. it's not landing at all. Take one pill twice a day, right. 12 a.m. and 12 p.m., Right. <laughs> 12 p.m. and 1 p.m. Right. So, so I decided that I was going to dedicate my life to, 
to teaching people how to be patients. Right. And and getting to patients, whether I was going to get to them or they were going to come to me, was about access. Yeah. And creating venue and space for care. Awesome. The um, so it sounds like you and I did residency about the same time, and I remember leaving there and feeling uh, I decided to open my my practice right away and feel like I had no idea how to do this, uh, how to run my business. Mm-hmm. And I know you were in academics for a while, and then decided to open your own. Yep. Um, did you know what you were doing? No, <laughs> never, not at any point. You have to mess it all up before you get it correct. Right. It's so expensive to, yeah. to make the errors. But um, no, the motivation when you leave and you're starting your own is that you, you want to be, you're really driven by what is success, right? So I can't define that for you. You can't mm-hmm. define that for me. It wasn't financial for me. It was this idea of I was, I was free. Mm-hmm. I was free to practice for the way that I wanted and for how long I wanted to spend time with patients. And it was worth the money that was going to be lost in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I had no background in business. Nobody teaches you the cost of medicine. I had taken two or three classes in my master's of public health. Right. And unfortunately, I spent a lot of time talking about the cost of medicine in an academic or in a hospital-based right. environment sure. with audits and Medicare and CMS control. But you don't learn about... You don't even learn how to order gauze until right. you order gauze. Right. And you order the wrong size and you're like, I have 1,000 sheets right. that I don't need. <laughs> yeah. I ordered pediatric needles for the first six months, not recognizing right. I was vaccinating with pediatric needles. A, a sort of very, very happy error because yeah, I kept them. Yeah, used them. Yeah, right. I kept them, and people were like, these are pain-free flu shots. Right, exactly. And every year I have some of the older folks that'll say, can you give me, (laughs) can I have the baby needles? So, yeah, you make a thousand errors in the beginning. Right. Um, So why do it? Like, you know, because of those errors and um, and that sort of pressure. I mean, there's pros and cons to everything. Can you talk about like that? the comparison from being employed actually. Sure. So when you're employed by someone, someone makes a schedule for you. They tell you the time you're coming in. They don't tell you the time to leave, but they certainly control who you see, how long you see them for. And when it's time to get out of the room, someone is going to knock and say, you're really running behind. And that's going to happen again in private practice. But at this time, it's going to be with a smile on someone's face saying, <laughs> you've just spent 45 minutes. You right. got to roll before we... Right. Before we have to reschedule them and tell them that you're right. sure. walking like molasses today. Sure. Um, you leave because you you have to make a decision somewhere along the way. It's a pinnacle moment in your career where you decide, what do I want to work for? Money, people, patients, myself, the community. And you just put your priorities in a row. For me, I wanted to, I really wanted to spend more time with patients. I happen to be someone who's constantly in love with primary care. No one made me become a primary care doctor. I, When I open the room every day, 20 times a day, I have no idea what's behind the door. Mm-hmm. It could be a stroke, a heart attack, someone who had just played squash and was in an abnormal heart rhythm, mm-hmm. or someone who can't sleep because they're depressed, but they're really here because they can't sleep. Mm-hmm. You don't know what you're going to get. So I enjoy the mystery aspect, the problem solving. I love the details. Um, and I wanted to spend the time hearing the details in one visit. I didn't want to keep bringing patients back. And in an academic environment, you only have so many time, so much yeah. time in a day. Yeah. And payment is based upon time. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So you sort of have to decide, is it okay to take the loss on not being paid for the time if at the end you've solved the case? And that's really why I left, the flexibility of the scheduling, yeah. what days I wanted to work, what days I wanted to be administrative and just take phone calls. Um, I finally got to meet a lot of patients' families, which was really important to me. There's a lot mm-hmm. of people in New York who are older working, who didn't have children, mm-hmm. who don't know what a healthcare proxy is or who don't know what a living will is, mm-hmm. who don't know who to direct for their health care. And I get to spend the time doing that. Um, there's just a lot of perks with the timing. You really, really get to know people. So mm-hmm. there's pa- I, I know my patients. I met my patients in academic environments. I got to know them as people in private practice. Yeah. Um, other than just knowing like the day-to-day operations, like, were there some sort of macro issues that were the most challenging when you decided to be an independent? Uh, yeah, there's like a list of 20 things. <laughs> like, how do you buy an EMR? And Yeah. Right? Did you, I mean... I, it's, yeah, it's, it's a mess. Yeah. Obamacare at that point required that everything right. be, was electronic. So yeah. I was shopping for an EMR and shopping for the vendor to buy my medical supplies for that was HIPAA compliant. Right. Did you know you had to have a HIPAA compliance on your fax machine? Right. <laughs> I didn't. Right. Um, there was a million small details that you had no exposure for that I remember I called my OBGYN who I'd known for 15 years and said... Me. Hi, Anna. It's Julie. I have a lot of questions. Can you call me back? <laughs> and she was like, Hey, I'm really busy, but I'm always hungry. Can you do Chinese food? And I was like, Sure, where? And I I gave her this list. I remember on like one of those um notepads that was left over from med school that you yeah. had all those pages at the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, Do you have a biller? Do you know what a HIPAA compliant fax is? Do you know how Time Warner sets up an encryption for the websites that I'm going to have to use in my office all day because the EMRs are all in the cloud. And she was like, yeah, just do this, this, this. And so thank God I had like a really good contact person who had done it before me. But one day I literally sat down and wrote it all out. And it was like a list of 25 things that I kept calling the same 10 people for saying, it's not working. It's not working. The, the person you gave me doesn't do this, this, and this. Can you give me another person? They were like, stop calling me. <laughs> you need to call a consultant. And I was like, I don't have money for that. Right, right. I don't have anything left. When I set up my corporation and I got my licensure down here, you spend so much money with, with the transa- health yeah. transactional attorneys just to set up a license and a spot that you haven't even turned the lights on for or gotten a malpractice mm-hmm. policy for that you, you have no money left in your name to mm-hmm. do the macro stuff for yeah. that costs so much money. Oh, it's unbelievable. You call home, you call your siblings, yeah. you call everybody who's like, they owed you $100. Like, right. can I have that money back? <laughs> <laughs> it's time to pay up. <laughs> yeah, I remember I, we when we opened our practice, it was before cloud computing, so we had to buy our yeah. own servers. And yeah. We had four huge IBM servers for two docs, and it was just ridiculous. Like, I don't know how to run a server, you know, all this. It was just yeah. crazy. You it's do crazy. compliance for every, after you buy everything, you then do a separate compliance. Like, right. right, so the copay terminal, the credit card terminal, there's a separate literal compliance where I pledge allegiance that we don't have credit <laughs> card numbers in the office. In the office, right. Because we have to get a HIPAA-compliant shredder that shreds those exact right. numbers if someone's oh silly gosh, enough to write it down. Right. Yeah. Um, you, I mean, obviously one of the, and we talked a little bit as, as we were getting started, often when we talk to our docs, um, and one of the biggest challenges, especially in primary care, 
um, in our network or in any across the U.S. Period, is that primary care is grossly undervalued. Um, and actually, one of our hopes on the pop health side is that we're 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 trying to flip that in some degree, right? Because it's about how do we comprehensively take care of patients, and our general bias is that that is best done with a strong primary care base, right? A strong mm-hmm. primary care relationship. So a lot of what we do is try to empower primary care docs in lots of different ways. And so when we ask the docs, why do you join the IPA? They almost universally, the first answer is rates, um, which is part of the story, right? So we want to make it financially sustainable to be independent. But we had a conversation as we were getting started that I think for those that are listening that are not from New York and have never practiced in New York, it's a very interesting experience that there are a significant chunk of our independent practice network are solo docs, maybe two, but often just solo docs. And it can be very isolating. I was wondering if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about that shift, because that was probably a shift from your prior academic role to now being independent and what that felt like and and how you feel like that's how the IPA has helped or not in that in that social is that social part, social connection, professional connection. Sure. So like I was saying before, I really miss my colleagues. I miss seeing them, talking to them, talking about cases. You could always take someone to the side and say, let me run this by you. Yeah. And that's completely gone. There's nothing, there's nobody to run anything by in private practice. So you are a markedly resourceful individual because you're always reading. And I say this to my patients now, I read more journals and spend so much more time educating myself because this is a discipline of Mm self-education. So you obviously lose that aspect. The IPA for me was a great space. It was a sort of super special venue of everybody that identically had some of the same issues in the office that I had. Um, Personality issues with patients or billing issues or what to say in certain scenarios with really, really difficult um, difficult patients mm-hmm. or difficult medical patients of, of how to handle or who to refer to and who to get involved in the care. Um, that context was really helpful for me because, it made, one, it made me feel like I'm just a normal primary care doctor. And two, there's a lot of value there. And there's a no, right because right. all of us unfortunately are suffering. This is normal. This <laughs> We're is all craziness. suffering. It, it is normal. We suffer from low self-esteem. Not me personally. Yeah. Um, but primary care sort of gets For sure. so pushed to the side, so so undervalued by even our colleagues who don't mean to do it. Because I think if they met us and they realized how much we did, they would be awed. Every once in a while, I get a oh my god, I can't believe you do that much, but. No, here, the the IPA was a was a wonderful place for me to go and bring my concerns and listen to other people's concerns and find solutions, and even if you never found a solution to certain things, it was just knowing that other people had your problem, mm-hmm. which made it all better. Mm-hmm. Um, I I value the network so much. I value my um, my dedicated rep, who is someone that I can speak freely to, who I can run things by to say, like, I'm really having a hard time understanding why you want me to to do this, to, to deliver value. I don't understand why this piece is important. Mm-hmm. So that gets explained to me in a really meaningful way versus, 
a threatening letter from an insurance company in the mail saying, if you don't do this, we're going to take money out of your paycheck. Right. Someone saying, hey, listen, there's a population health manager that calculates how many of your patients haven't gotten colon cancer screenings. Like, what's up with you? Are you forgetting to do this? Or are they not going? Right. But someone who, who at least makes you feel a clinical responsibility. And yeah. that's, I really value that part of the IPA. And yeah. I try to... I try to go to meet people um, and to meet the doctors that are, in reality, running New York City, mm-hmm. specifically in my neighborhood in downtown. It's all powered by, you know, one and two do- one and two practice doctors, and we're doing an inordinate amount of work to either mm-hmm. one keep people out of the ER, right, or out of the OR, or going to all these urgent cares but again we're trying to see so many patients and we're trying to keep them out of the trappings that make people sicker while they're trying to get better yeah Dude, um and it and it's totally okay if the answer is no what? because it helps us to, uh, be sort of honest with ourselves but you know we uh part of our overall goals is in the, sort of in the journey to empower primary care docs is to help them understand how the sort of macroeconomics of healthcare are changing and towards pop health, you know, um, why is it in, I mean, it's obviously clinically important to keep people out of the hospital, but the relationship of that to how reimbursement is changing, you know, those, those sorts of issues, the connection of improving outcomes, reducing costs will translate into a, a change in how my office is financed and operates and is sustainable. Do you actually feel that yet or not? Not so much yet. So yes and no. So when I go to the IPA meetings and there's one dedicated, um, she's so lovely, I wish I could remember her name. She's a doctor who puts up this pie chart and it always shows how (laughs) health is the largest part of our GDP. Yeah, yeah. She always goes over that. And I always have to sort of marvel like, how's this happening in 2019? And why is this not the case in Europe? And why is Cuba's healthcare system so much better than ours? You've got <laughs> yeah, to yeah. you've got to wonder, particularly even in New York, where there's such a a maldistribution of 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 money and wealth. Mm-hmm. But how does this? How do we keep bankrupting the same system over and over? And so the the trend towards back to primary, I feel it, but not in the way you think. Not because okay. of the New York Times or not because of the IPA, because our patients are trying to actually see us. So it used to be that if you were 25 or 35 and you felt chest pain, you would actually go to a cardiologist. I now inevitably will get 10 emails a day saying, hi, Dr. Nelson, I feel chest pain. I feel like from prior conversation, this is you're going to tell me it's not my heart. I want to run this by you. Can I see you today? Right. And so they can. They've got wonderful insurance, really, you know, insurance sure. that commercial insurance that their work is paying for. They could go spend four hundred and fifty dollars at a visit to say take to Tylenol and Advil, yeah, yeah, right. or I could do a twenty dollar EKG in here and spend the rest of the time reassuring them yeah. for a total of a hundred and twenty dollar visit. Which, by the way, I've now developed a sense of loyalty for the care mm-hmm. of my patient who felt she was in distress or he was in distress that day, right? So there is this feeling of, let me touch base. Let me tell you what's happening with my health. I think you should know. I have all these emails that start with, I want to tell you, I want to keep you in the loop. I'm not sure. Could you send me in the right direction? A lot of them even end, I'm going to see a dermatologist unless you tell me otherwise. And that's totally brand new. Mm -hmm. In academic medicine, there was a hundred self-referrals 
you didn't know people were self-referring, which I felt was like you were <laughs> betraying me. Mm-hmm. And I can't explain that feeling. Like, why do they know before I do, right? Yeah, right. It, it was such a... It was out of caring, I think, at the end of... Well, sure, of course. Like, you should have told me that first. I'd have told you what to do. But again, people are largely independent. Yes, and people are so independent here and they do so much reading online and everything goes in a Google box. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, and it's because I spend all this time in the office saying, nothing goes inside of the Google box. (laughs) You you put it in an email to me and then I'll tell you... I'll be your Google. I'll tell you how to put this in the Google box if you have to go there or I'll send you the link from the Google box. Right, right. But there is an inordinate amount of, right? So it's, when I was doing my master's, we talked about of um, reversion to the mean. Yeah, sure. This is reversion. I am feeling reversion to the mean. I, I haven't seen it through hard data in the IPA. We discuss it all the time. We see all the stats sort of, they're going to refavor us mm-hmm. shortly. I am a huge believer in primary care. I wouldn't train. I. I, I cannot tell you the amount of work we do. There's, I, I make it my business to keep people out of specialist mm-hmm. office. If I can help it, I think about my specialist as my artillery in my back pocket. Yeah. We call them when we need them. Right. But at least we start the work up here so that when you go, it's an intelligent... We call it... You're going for an intelligent visit. The, the blood work results for the rheumatologist are in the hand. They can now go to step two. Mm-hmm. So now we've saved a trip. The doctor makes a decision on that day. You save money in the copay, which is a huge motivator, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then you don't have to go for so many visits. And those are magic words. Yeah. So that's, that's awesome. Um, one of the things that's strikingly different in my experience so far in New York and in the state of primary care than from my colleagues in other states and certainly my experience in North Carolina is that we look at often the, the PCP to specialist ratio. So how many visits they they patient will see a, a primary care physician versus a specialist and in North Carolina it was not unusual for it to be two to three times as often they would see their primary care doctor uh, compared to a specialist in New York it's half uh, it's very common I think our network average is somewhere between like 50 to 60 percent like 0.5 to 0.6 ratios PCP to specialists so they will see their specialists twice as often as they see that hurts my feelings it, it's terrible right <laughs> I'm, yeah I mean I'm with feelings. you um and so if I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that, I mean, it is because of that relationship, right, that you're able to have a different experience. Here. I have a different experience. I'm fairly young. I don't say that lightly. I'm very aware of that. So it's probably close to the same age. I'm like, yes. <laughs> so I'm not going to disclose my age, but I will say being online and taking an email um, Monday to Friday all the way to 8 o'clock, certainly it helps the there's definitely a disparity in my practice in in the age group i have this i have this total uh, gray zone between 45 and then 65 so if you're 65 and older you probably already have medicare mm-hmm. and those are the ones that want to see me the most the disparity is in those young folks and again i have to split them again if you're between 30 and 45 you're always sending that email to me first. If you're between 20 and 30, you're on ZocDoc. Right. You're finding a specialist at 2 a.m. who can see you by 10 a.m. Right. And it's the dot-com era. It's yeah. a It's a really... It, they, in, they enjoy being able to take care of their health very quickly yeah. by using a website terms. on their phone mm-hmm. on the way home from their job that ends at 11 p.m. Right. 
yeah, it's uh, it's a total disparity. So yeah. interestingly, when I finished academic medicine, mm-hmm. um, my resume had gotten into the hands of, in the world of education, it's not so big. It had fallen into hands of folks at um, University of at of Indiana at Bloomington, uh-huh. and they were starting up a brand new med school and. I got um, an email saying, could you come down? Can you, can you just look at our space? Can you look at our med school? Can you assess our med school? Can you teach at our med school? Could you be the dean of our med school? <laughs> you did all this academic medicine. Can you come down for, for at least just an interview? We're mm-hmm. probably going to hire you. We haven't met you. We're probably just going to hire you. Yeah. And I was like, what is going on here in New York? You would have to go through four interviews yeah, before that. So I go down, and there's a black car at the airport, and a meal in the black car. <laughs> And I get there, and I'm looking at the med school, which is beautiful, and I'm talking to my interviewee, and they say to me, we've got a dermatologist on board here. Um, he makes his way down here to Bloomington the first Friday of every month. Wow. And I was like, so what do you do for the rest? And they were like, they just wait. And I was like, well, what do you do with the rest of the specialists? And they're like, well, they see a specialist, you know, every once in a while, but they're going to see you probably 20 times for every one time and I was like are you serious I was like I've got a dermatologist in every square mile of the city as much as I've got Dwayne Reeves (laughs) I've got four dermatologists across the street from my office right 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 now now. yeah literally I could see them from my front window right and so that's New York yeah it's very different it's a saturated market but it's it's interestingly and this is how you're going to feel a difference I think it's a saturated market and because the millennials always want the best the folks that are practicing the best primary care are going to keep getting hit over and over, and you're going to see the shift from the good PCPs who keep seeing their patients because even the millennials will realize that it's a waste of their time to spend yeah, time at, at these very hyper-marketed mm-hmm. specialists who, and I quote, they like spent five minutes with me. I, right. I didn't even raise my sleep for the mole, and they said the mole's normal. Right. So it's coming back you're to us. It. I'm really hopeful. Seems like a, a good way to end our conversation. So it was a, a word of hope, I think, for primary care, which which is great. Um, thank you a bunch for your time and thank the conversation. Yeah. Um, if folks listening have ideas for other podcasts, please email me at robert.fields at mountsinai.org. Um, thanks a lot. Thank you. Hey.